Heavenly Father, as we just, uh, again, take a look at your word that you would bless. We thank you for it. We thank you that you, you want us to know uh, what this life is all about, and even the life to come. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to have a little different start to the message this morning. I'm going to call this a pre-introduction. Um, I'd like to talk about the preaching ministry overview, and just kind of looking at what we're going to be uh, uh, doing in the next uh, days here. Um, obviously, the purpose of this is, is to meet the needs of the church, all right? That's really what the preaching ministry is about. Um, and so I want to first look at the big picture here. We have a unique gap in time right after the Resurrection Sunday and between um, really two studies of, of uh, subjects. Uh, one was obviously Colossians, and the next one I'll get to in a moment. But I want to take advantage of this gap and invest some time this morning to consider the bigger picture of the preaching ministry. Uh, this not only fits well within the preaching schedule as far as going over this, but it works to accomplish uh, this today because of you know, the subjects that we're going to be covering. So there are examples of Scripture in basically informing um, God preparing his people for leaving Egypt. It wasn't like one day they woke up and God said, okay, you're going to leave now, right? He, he gave them instructions on what was going to happen and why. Jesus preparing his disciples for what was to come. And I even uh, think of um, uh, Proverbs uh, 16. Uh, sorry about that. There we go. The plans of the heart belong to man. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his, his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Now, we're not going to get into these three phrases deeply, but in a nutshell, what they basically say is, and they're all similar, man can and should plan, but God ultimately knows all and is in control. All of our planning should be in light of God's will. Okay, so that's really the basis of what we want to talk about. But then I also want to read something for you. If you turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, this is just a very practical way that we see God's planning and God's letting his people know what the plan is. Nehemiah 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 for you and then skip to verse 11. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes when Wine was before him that I took the wine and gave it to the king, Nehemiah, by, by the way, being his cupbearer. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. That was kind of a no-no. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. And then I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? And so I prayed to, to the God of heaven, and he said, and said to the king, uh, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So the king said to me, the queen, who, the queen who also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, 
that he must give me timber to make the beams of the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the letters. And now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. And then down to verse 11. Then I came to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate and the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that I was under to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. And then I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where, where I had gone. Or what I had done, I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. And so they said, Let us rise and build. And then they set their hands to do this good work. So the reason why I share that with you is because I do believe that God wants his people to be informed. And so as we're moving forward together, really, when we're talking about the word of God here, it's not just me getting up and saying a bunch of things and then sitting down and then we just all go our merry way. It's, it's really supposed to do a work in all of our lives. And so I kind of want you to know, again, the, the big picture of what we're looking at. First of all, we have the, the needs of the church. Um, uh, we, we transitioned from a long-tenured pastor, 35 years, and that's not always easy to do. The transition was necessary, but change is often accompanied by challenges, and it, it, it just happens. There are things that, that take place. Also, the church leadership, and I do believe other folks in the church, wanted to evaluate our ministries and our methods just to kind of take a fresh look at things during this time of transition, and we have done some of that. And so that's kind of what we've been about. That's where the needs of the church have been. So where have we been as far as our preaching is concerned? Our primary text has been Colossians with Philemon added because of its close association with Paul's letter to the Colossian church. Okay. The main reason that we went through the book of Colossians was that the book aligned with the primary needs of our church during our transition we were able to focus on the supremacy of Christ. That was one of the main things that we saw in Colossians. And if we're talking about change and different things happening, and, you know, here's this new guy talking to us and all this other kind of stuff, right? What you want to do is you want to make sure that your focus is on the primary person, on Christ. Not our circumstances, but on him. And then the other thing is, there was a focus in Colossians on our personal spiritual growth. That's important. That's something that we need to keep up on and not be concerned about, again, in, in relation to our circumstances, but get beyond those circumstances and make sure that we are living a life that God wants us to live in. So just to, to focus on that, continue that, right? And then the importance of relationships in Christ. Uh, certainly, the, the church, um, Christ's church, is going to continue 
right? And we want this church to continue, not that we're questioning whether or not it will, but we want it to continue in a healthy fashion. And so if we're going to see that happen, we need to talk about relationships and how we are to deal with one another. And that was part of what was in the book of Colossians. And even Philemon, because Philemon was really a, 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 a real-time exercise of what Paul had just written to the Colossian church about. All right. So in all those different things, that was really how I, I felt that the needs would have been of the church would have been met based upon looking at Colossians. So several things um, I, I, I listed actually in the introductory message that I had, and I've modified those just a little bit, but here they are. Uh, and, and Colossians finally means a smaller church doesn't escape God's attention. Folks, that's an encouragement, isn't it? He, he, he hasn't, you know, overlooked Lemoyne Baptist Church based upon the fact that, you know, we're under 150, okay? We are important to him. A church can, our church can and should have an impact for God's kingdom, right? That's why we come and do what we do. That's why we go out and speak. Our church can and should be a close-knit, loving community for Christ. And I, I think that we have seen, demonstrated over and over again, the importance of, of the relationship that we have together. Individual believers are important to the Lord, and just to highlight that, even a runaway slave, Onesimus, was important to the Lord. There's a, there's a book to Philemon written about him being restored as a brother in Christ. And then lastly, every individual, no matter our status, our abilities, or our background, should serve Christ effectively. That's really what we want to be all about. And, and I, I think that those things were were said and done through the book of Colossians, but we don't just say, okay, good, let's close that up and let's move on, but we need to keep applying those things, right? Which then brings us to where we're headed. I want to talk about the near future first. Um, and this is kind of more of the, you know, informational part of this, where are we going? Uh, we're going to have five messages on the kingdom of God in April and May. Um, this includes today's introduction of the message and then explanation on the triumph, expansion, I'm sorry, on the triumphal entry and the resurrection. We've just talked about the triumphal entry, the resurrection. All of those really have to do with the kingdom of God coming, right? And so we're going to talk a little bit about the kingdom of God. Then in May, we have some exciting things going on. May 7th, Craig and Abby Brunson are going to be coming and presenting their ministry to us. They are in a closed country, and uh, I will let them determine whether or not they're going to let us know specifically uh, what that country is. Uh, that is not my privilege to do. But um, some of you may know Abby Brunson a little bit better. Uh, her name used to be Abby Troutman. And so a number of you have been here for, well, a while. Uh, know that the Troutmans used to attend here. Um, and he, uh, they lived a long ways away. And so a while back, they made a difficult decision of, of just being able to serve the Lord better in a different church. And I've actually had some uh, interaction with her dad, Brian, even through Baptist Children's Home, because their church supports BCH. So it's kind of interesting. So anyway, they're going to be coming in May, and they're going to be presenting the ministry to us. Then we have Mother's Day. Then Niku Sortier and his family will be coming. 
and they're coming to give us a report on what's been going on in their ministry in Romania. So we have Missions May, okay? And then uh, on the 28th will be our final message uh, for um, the kingdom, right? At least right around there. Now, just a couple of quick things as we talk about missions. Um, Acts 13, 1 through 3 says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. What did they send them away to do? To be missionaries. So it's the church's responsibility to send missionaries. Along with that, we see in Acts 14, the next chapter, verses 27 and 28. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, Paul and Barnabas reported all that God had done with them. And that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So what did the missionaries do when they went out and served? They came back and reported to the church. So we have both these things potentially happening in May. So I just wanted to help you understand where we're headed. Now, beginning of June, beginning in June, what I want to do is, I would like to do, and I, and I put in parentheses here relatively, that'll make sense to you in a minute, an in-depth study of Job. Um, Job has been a book, personally, that has just fascinated me for years, okay? Now, many studies focus on the bookends, Job's suffering and then God's response. Um, not criticizing. It's many, many chapters long, and there's a lot of conversation that goes on, and sometimes it's kind of difficult to wade through. Um, again, there's Job's trials, there's God's response, but I, I think that little attention is given to the conversation with friends. But here's the point. It's in there. There must be a reason why this back-and-forth conversation is there for us to read and to understand. And so I really want to uh, focus on that a bit. We will break down the dialogue in this study. To what degree, I don't know, okay? But we, we don't have the time to go through verse by verse the entire book, all right? I'm just going to warn you in advance about that. Um, and, and I just want to encourage you to, to listen to the missed messages, right? If, if, you're, if you're on vacation or something like that. Um, I always feel funny about this. It feels almost self-serving. It's not. But, but the point is this. As we're going to be looking at Job, and you'll hear this again, but as we're going to be looking at Job, um, part of the reason why I really feel like we need to do this is because we have a number of folks that are going through really some difficult times. Um, in, in various ways. And so I really believe that there is a message of hope in Job, and, and there, there's even some things that can warn us about how we might respond to some of those trials um, and even prepare us for trials to come, right? So, so that's really why I want to uh, ultimately go through this book. But um, we are sometimes familiar with other, you know, like, New Testament letters or the gospel or something like that. If we miss a week, we can kind of fill in the blanks. Um, it might not be quite as easy to do with Job. And so that's why I'm, just why I'm encouraging you to kind of fill in those blanks if you can. All right. So then uh, just looking at a longer term view of things. Okay. We, we, we said that Job is going to be our longer term study. But I also want to look at the office of pastor, elder, bishop. Um, 
that's going to happen at some point. Um, it's a relevant topic, um, uh, and also relevant topics related to the church. As God's lead, I didn't say that right, as God leads, this plan may be altered a bit. And when I, when I say that is because if, in fact, God moves and we're looking at somebody sooner than later, uh, Job is going to kind of get accordioned a little bit, right? <laughs> because there's some things that, that we're going to be covering uh, in relation to our preparation as a body of believers when we're talking about calling another pastor. So, so there, there's, you know, some things that we just need to kind of leave a little fluid, and it's, it's just the uniqueness of the, the, the uh, position that we're in, okay? So all that to say, I want you to be informed. I want you to know where we're heading and why, all right? And so that's where we're headed down the road. Today, we're going to talk about the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? Uh, as we consider, again, just introducing this, today's message begins a mini-series on the kingdom of God. I already said that. The kingdom of God can carry a bit of mystery and even some confusion. Have you ever gone through the Gospels and been like, oh, man, is that, what, what is, you know, th there's a lot of different aspects to this, and we're going to talk about those in just a little bit and in the weeks to come. But I want this series to provide a practical understanding of the kingdom of God. My goal today is to cover enough of the kingdom to lay a foundation for the rest of our series. And let me just say, without creating confusion. Okay, <laughs> so, you know, I'm going to try to work on that. Our study today is also linked back to our last two messages. We began the Passion Week by considering the significance of the triumphal, triumphal entry of Christ. We must keep one thing in particular straight. Christ's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem as king was not just some dry run. Some people believe that. It was like, well, you know, I came and I let you know I was going to be the king, but then you rejected me, right? So I'm not king yet. That's not the case. Jesus was the Messiah or chosen one who was fulfilling prophecies of the servant king who was to come and give his life for the sins of his chosen people. Last week, we celebrated the triumphal resurrection of Christ, once for all conquering sin and death. Paul said it well uh, to Timothy as he encouraged his friend to remain strong in his service to Christ. I want us to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. But as has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Life and immortality come, came through the gospel. And as we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is an essential part of the good news of salvation. Without it, we have no hope. We focus a lot on his death that was absolutely necessary. But if he stayed dead, we had no hope. He is the first fruits. He is the one who's resurrected first. We will one day follow. So let's go back and read part of what the Apostle Peter spoke to the people about after the risen Christ appeared to his followers. And we're going to go back to Acts chapter 2. 
Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. There'll be some kingdom remarks in here, and we may get to them at some point, but I just want us to understand that there is obviously a tie-in back to Christ, back to the resurrection. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope because you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ, right, the anointed one, the chosen one, to sit on his throne. He, David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul had not left, was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, look at this, both Lord and Christ. Amen. The risen Christ, seated at the place of honor at the right hand of God, certainly refers to Christ as King. And with that, we're beginning our study of the kingdom of God. So the one thing we need to understand is, as we look at this, there are actually two phrases that are given in the Gospels, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. So the first task we have is to um, clear up some terms. Why are there two seemingly similar titles and are they speaking of the same thing? Well, I'll answer the last part of that first, and I'm just going to give you a short answer. Yes, they are the same thing, but we're going to explore this a little further so that you can have some confidence in the conclusion of that, okay? The term kingdom of heaven is exclusive to Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel focus is on Christ the king. He really talks a lot about that. We see the lineage there, and, and it is a lengthy gospel that, that really establishes Christ as king. This phrase is used to more directly link Christ the king with the prophecies of Daniel. He described the kingdom that God would establish that it is far superior to all earthly kingdoms. 
That's what Daniel basically says. He described the kingdom that God would establish uh, as far superior, and Daniel said the coming Messiah would rule this kingdom. He says it very clearly. We might talk about that a little bit later. Here are some examples of the phrase being used in Matthew, this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. First one was used by John the baptizer, John the Baptist. Matthew 3, 1 through 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, now just in case we, we want to be confused, don't want to be confused about terms here, we're making the path straight for the capital L-O-R-D the self-existent one, the, the very name of God that the Jews didn't even really say out loud, okay? Capital L and then lowercase o-r-d, Adonai, that, that, is, that is master. That's used in different ways. It is certainly a term of deity, but this is the term of deity. There's no confusion that uh, John is making straight, he's, he's the forerunner of God himself who was going to come. All right? And notice, he's telling them to prepare for the kingdom of heaven. As we read further in Matthew, we see that Jesus continued this same message. Uh, let's look at um, Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. It's just a little too big to pop on the screen. Matthew chapter 4, going to start in, in uh, uh, verse 12, and then read down through verse 17. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness saw a great light. And upon those who sat in the region, in the shadow of death, light has dawned. And look at this. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what was the occasion here? Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison. So what did Jesus do? He, he really picked up that same message, right? He picked up that same message that John was preaching about the Lord who was to come. And he's now saying the same thing. You need to repent. This passage very deliberately states that, the, that repentance was the message of Christ to his people. To repent means to have a change of mind, particularly changing your thinking from sinfulness to righteousness, really changing our thinking about this world to the kingdom of God. John, being the forerunner of Christ, was anticipating the coming Christ and saying, you need to repent in preparation of his appearing. Now Christ himself is calling the people to have a change of mind because he is now coming and establishing his kingdom. So it is absolutely fitting that Jesus would continue this message 
because the message is about him. Right? Now, there's one other aspect to this, which is what something Jesus said about gaining entry into the kingdom of heaven. All right? And so we're going to turn to Matthew. Actually, you don't need to turn there. I've got it on the screen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Right? He wasn't doing away with the law. He was completing the law. He was fulfilling everything that was written, the law and the prophets. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness, listen to this, surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we're going to unpack this one a little bit because, again, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. This would have been a shocking thing for the Jews to hear. I mean, this would have been something that would have totally taken them off their paradigm. It would have blown their minds. The Pharisees, the very strict and devout religious leaders of the day, were highly respected. They were feared. The average person would never have considered that it was possible to match the righteousness of a Pharisee. So to say that a person had to go beyond a Pharisee's righteousness would have blown them away. It may have even left some people feeling hopeless. Okay? We know that Jesus was purposefully helping them see that it was impossible to gain heaven on their own. It's impossible for us to gain heaven on our own. We know that when we have faith in what Jesus did for us, he gives us his righteousness, his perfect goodness. So it is through Jesus that we possess a goodness that goes beyond the outward show of goodness of the Pharisees. So in reality, surpassing the righteousness of the Pharisees, in one sense, was quite easy to do. It was to place your confidence in Christ. It was to gain righteousness that only he could give because we can't do it on our own. Simple. Simple to understand. Simple in its message. Extremely difficult to even grasp on our own. It's it's a faith matter, right? That's why Jesus is called a, a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling. So as we mentioned before, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing. We've now talked to you a little bit about what the kingdom, what Jesus said about the kingdom, that it's, it's a matter of repenting and that it's a matter of really taking on his righteousness. But I also want you to see, just so we understand that these two terms, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, are the same, is that Jesus uses both terms in Matthew. It's exclusive to Matthew, but Jesus uses both terms in Matthew, meaning the kingdom of heaven is not used outside of that in the other Gospels. So let's look at some, some uh, passages here. There are more than this, but it says, But seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. That's, that's part of the Lord's Prayer, right? That's in Matthew chapter 6. Then he says in Matthew 21, 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. That was a pronouncement he made against the Pharisees, right? And then we see it used interchangeably in one passage in Matthew 19. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So when we're reading through the Gospels, we don't have to sit there and go, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Uh, right? We're good. As a matter of fact, we're going to go just a little bit further because we're doing a study here. And we're going to see... Uh, how there are some cross-references that are really the same. I'm not going to read every verse, but we're going to see it. So in Mark 14, I'm sorry, Mark 1, 14 and 15, it parallels to Matthew chapter 4, right, where he says repentance. says, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, right? Same message. And we see that in Mark, but it's the kingdom of God. And then um, Matthew chapter 13, 33 says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, right? And we read that earlier, but look at what Luke 13, 13 says. And again, he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid three measures of, of meal till it was all leavened. So again, we have these parallel passages. And then one more. Matthew 18, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, he says the very similar thing, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. This is exactly written the same in Mark 10, 15, and Luke 18, 17. So what can we take away from this? There, there aren't two kingdoms that are somehow competing with one another. There isn't this kingdom of God, and that's something. And then there's this kingdom of heaven, and that's something else. They're one and the same. So hopefully just that will decrease our confusion level. All right? So now we're going to move forward and look at some basic aspects of the kingdom of God. Now, this is not going to be a deep dive, but it's going to be enough to get us going on this. All right? It's going to give us some foundation, and that's the idea. So let me jump ahead to my notes here. So moving forward in our study, we're going to establish some foundational elements about the kingdom, which will help us as we build upon our study the next several weeks. Our focus will be less about what, what it is about the kingdom and more of the overall structure of the kingdom. So that's really what we're talking about, the overall structure of the kingdom, okay? So here we have the basic aspects of the kingdom of God. The first one is the kingdom of God is future. And I've got a couple of passages to share with you about that. Luke 13, 28 and 29. But there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. So we see that this kingdom is future. Mark 9, 47 says this, And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Okay, so 
take, and by the way, this isn't saying that if an eye offends me, meaning if I sin through what I see, that I should literally yank my eye out, okay? This is called hyperbole, right? It's an exaggerated language to say, take your sin seriously. Take your sin seriously. Stop doing it. Does that coincide with repent for the kingdom of God is at hand? Yes. All right. The kingdom of God is future, but the kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of God is present. Now, I did say I was going to try to eliminate confusion this morning. Just hang on. All right. So let's look at at a passage here. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Well, he just said we're going to be entering the kingdom of God. And now he's saying the kingdom of God is here, there, then. 2,000 years ago. There's another passage I want us to look at. It says, And I said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. If Jesus is talking to a group of people and he says, You're not going to die until you see the kingdom of God. That's not immediate, but boy, that's coming really soon. And it's certainly coming before their death. All right? So again, let's just hang on. We have future aspect, and then we have present aspect. Another one. The kingdom of God is spiritual. I want us to read from John chapter 3. This was the interaction that Jesus had with um, Nicodemus who happened to be a Pharisee, was supposedly a learned man. And I just say supposedly because that's kind of what Jesus said. Okay, so I'm not ripping on the guy. Jesus questioned how well-informed he actually was. And so we're just going to read the first 10 verses. Obviously, we could go on. It's, it's a beautiful exchange. Here we have John 3.16. You know, it's, it's very much about salvation. But look at what it says here. There is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Now, I don't know who that we is, but that we included Nicodemus. He's recognizing something, right? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's not the Pharisees that we normally hear, right? And it goes on. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless Uh, One is born again, he cannot see what? The kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's the water associated with the birthing process, right? And that which is born of the Spirit is is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, 
How can these things be? And then Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I love that phrase, right? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and we do not receive, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I went a little far, got excited. So, anyway, here's the point. He's telling him you had to be born again to enter the kingdom. So this is obviously a spiritual thing. And then John tells us, and if you notice, John's gospel is pretty exclusive when it comes to this aspect of it. These are the, actually the only three occurrences that we see this phrase in the book of John. It says, John answered, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, that's another little slice, right? If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. This is when he was talking with Pilate, obviously, right before he was crucified. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So what's he saying? My kingdom is not of this world. It's a, it's a spiritual kingdom. And of course, I want to clear things up by saying the kingdom of God is physical. <laughs> okay. Again, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Let's look at Luke chapter 13, verse 29. It says, they will come from the east and from the west. Remember this verse? And from the north and from the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. This is the idea of being settled. It, it there's going to be a physical place. And then I want us to take a look at Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. We're going to go outside of the Gospels just a little bit here. But if we look at Revelation 21, I want us to read what it says here very explicitly, very detailed about what is coming. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9, and then spilling down through chapter 22, through verse 5. I know we're looking at a lot of scripture today, but just kind of let it wash over you. Gather what you can. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had great and high wall, a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its depth, breadth. And he measured the city with the reed. 12,000 furlongs, its length, and breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. And the construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. 
The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth, seventh, I'm sorry, the eighth beryl, and the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh hyacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut all the, all, at all by day, and there shall be no night. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes any abomination or lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. They, sh they need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now, folks, I don't know if I can fully describe all of those things, but I believe this is a real description of a real place. All right? And so we have to understand there actually is a physical aspect to the kingdom. There is going to be a throne, and there is going to be this great and glorious city. Can I answer all of your questions about it? Absolutely not. Okay? Because we don't have the information. Lastly, the kingdom of God is forever. Looking at just a few passages here, starting in Daniel chapter 6, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Daniel 7, 14 says this, Then to him was, dominion, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And then one more verse out of Second Peter. It's almost like a bookend, you know, Second Peter, a little bit later book that was written. And then we have, we have um, uh, Daniel, and then obviously the gospel there, not quite in the middle, but still in the middle. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here we have these different aspects of the kingdom of God. As we consider what all this means, the kingdom of God is future, the kingdom of God is now, the kingdom of God is spiritual, it's physical, and the kingdom of God is forever. So it should be clear from our study that we still have some work to do. We still have some things to learn about the kingdom of God, and we will do that over the next several weeks. But for now, let's consider the aspects that we've covered today. As we do that, we need to resist sliding into overcomplicating 
the subject of God's kingdom. And I think that's, I'm just going to be very transparent with you, that's what I have done sometimes. Instead, we need to understand that each aspect is designed to emphasize an element of the kingdom of God and that they all coexist without contradicting one another. Did you get that? Every one of these aspects is for a purpose to help explain what the kingdom is. They don't necessarily go against one another. We need to actively observe how the kingdom is being emphasized in each context so that we can make a proper interpretation. But as we do this, let's make some application. The kingdom of God's future and literal is a future, literal, physical place. We know that. That's been revealed to us. The kingdom of God is a present spiritual state for all who are in Christ. We are in, but it isn't fully completed yet. Jesus is still adding to his kingdom. We'll talk a little bit more about something that, that relates to this in just a moment. So although God's kingdom is a future physical place, everyone there has been spiritually made alive by God through Christ. Therefore, it is very much a spiritual kingdom. So they don't contradict. Those who are there, they're there because of spiritual reasons, but we will be there bodily. All right? God established his kingdom with man when God the Son came down and gave his life so that those who believe in him will take part in his kingdom. We established that already. The kingdom of God will be made complete at the resurrection of the dead as promised and guaranteed by Christ's resurrection. If you remember, I'm hearkening back to last week. What, what, did we, what were we told? Christ was the first fruits. He's, he's the first of those who will come. Now, there are those who have died, but they have still not risen bodily from the grave. That is going to happen all at once. Those in Christ, we will, they will rise first, and those who are still alive in Christ are going to follow after. I think it's going to be pretty quick. I don't think we're going to be like, are they done yet? You know, it's, anyway, but you get the idea. We will be given, as I mentioned, real but glorified bodies at the resurrection. And the kingdom of God is an everlasting kingdom. So it's present, it's future, and it's forever. All at the same time. <laughs> so we live our lives as if we are part of the kingdom of God. And of course, that's because we are if we are in Christ, we are in God's kingdom. We are simply waiting for the resurrection when everything is made complete. I almost am afraid to ask, was that helpful? Do you understand? These things can all coexist. They don't go against each other. So when we're reading, it's like the kingdom of God is a forever kingdom, right? No matter where you're reading, gospels, wherever. Okay, that's great. The kingdom of God is now. Uh, the kingdom of God is future. My brain's starting to hurt. It doesn't have to anymore. Those are all elements of the kingdom of God. 
And if we really let them just be what they are and even kind of correlate them, they don't go against one another and there shouldn't be confusion. It just happens to be what is Jesus talking about when he's saying some of these aspects and why? What is Daniel talking about? What is Revelation talking about? Wherever it's talking about it, what is the purpose that is being said? Okay? And that's going to lead us into what aspect of it is, but it all comes down to this. There will be a day when we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. And that new heaven, new earth, the scriptures tell us that all the old stuff is going to pass away. There's going to be complete and total separation of those who are not in Christ. A forever separation, folks. They will have rejected Christ's offer. They will have rejected God as their king. They will have wanted to live out their lives in their sin. And when they took their last, when they take their last, they will be forever separated from him. That's the reality. But all who are in Christ are going to enter a kingdom that is going to be very real, but is going to be based completely and totally on what has happened to us spiritually and is going to last forever. Christ rising first, giving us the guarantee that we will one day rise with him and we will forever be with the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as, as I mentioned before, it's, it's just something that, that we can slide into. And, and I, I admit to you even now that, that I have sometimes. It's, it's, it seems complicated. And yet you, you wanted your people to know. Uh, we'll talk about this later on, Lord. You know that. But the Jews were looking for a different kind of kingdom. That was the problem. That was where all of the arguments and the butting of heads took place. They wanted a Messiah to serve them. They had no intention of serving God's chosen one, your son who came. And so we thank you that you established your kingdom with us when Christ came. It was foretold, and Christ sealed it when he died and rose again. And so, Lord, we know that you are still gathering our, our fellow kingdom members, and we can even be a part of that. And so I pray, Father, that you'll use us to share the good news of Jesus, to live like we're a part of the kingdom, and to enjoy hearing and seeing other people that you call into your family. Lord, we also know that there is going to be a time. It's coming. When your kingdom will be complete. We know that there's going to be a day when the resurrection, the final resurrection will take place. And those, whether alive or dead, that have rejected you, will be sentenced 
to the second eternal death. Father, there's someone here in this room who does not know Christ as their Savior. Maybe they just need more information about your son. I pray, Lord, that you'll work in their life even today. Lord, I don't want you to scare them to death. I want you to scare them to life. <laughs> but more than anything else, that they'll recognize that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The Messiah, the chosen one, the one who was given for us, foretold that he would be our king. We thank you for a perfect, wonderful king who came as a lowly servant, but is now the king of kings and lord of lords. We've praised him today, and we even elevate his name now. And in Christ